0: Exactly six months ago on December 18, I preached on 2 Samuel 7, 1-17, a sermon entitled Christ is King. The sermon was part of a seasonal and topical series on the threefold office of Christ, his role as prophet, priest, and king. I'm going to rehash much of what I said that day, that Sunday before the 2022 Christmas Without, of course, all the Christmas material, though I'm guessing you guys wouldn't mind something like Christmas in the summer. Steve, I don't like to make it happen or something, you know. But today is Father's Day, and we're once again turning to Second Samuel seven, and we'll not only cover the great promises of God in verses one through seventeen again, but we'll also look at the rest of the chapter, verses eighteen to twenty-nine. Now, before I read, I want to address the men here as I did last two weeks. As a fellow man, I've been sharing inspirational quotes for men in June, asking myself and all of us men here questions like Are we waging in spiritual battles? Are we worshiping God earnestly? Today, I ask less intense questions How well do you sleep at night? Do you bring the anxiety of work back home? Do you collapse on your bed under the pressures to provide for your family? I was encouraged by a pastor's blog this week. It was written a while back, but I read it this week, entitled, Rest Upon the Pillow of God's Promises. The author, Eric Raymond, exhorts, and I'm paraphrasing here. Can we be like Jacob in Bethel? Jesus caught in the storm of the, in the Sea of Galilee? Paul with the snake bite in Malta? Can we trust that God will do what he said he would do? Can we sleep in peace? I think of all the occupational hazard of David's career as king the wars, the rivalries, the rebellions. How does this guy not wake up every night? From nightmares in cold sweat. How is this man in the arena and a man of worship? Also a man sleeping on the pillow? Someone who lies down in peace and sleep, as Psalm 48 says. The answer is the man of God rests assured upon the word of God. Like Psalm 149 says. He's joyful in glory, sings aloud on his bed. The high praises of God is in his mouth. And for David, a two edged sword in his hand. Now let's see how that pillow of God's promises look and feel from 2 Samuel 7 1 through 17. If you're using the Pew Bible, uh, you'll find it this passage in page 216. Page 216 in your pew Bibles, 2 Samuel 7. I'll first read verses 1 to 17. Now it came to pass when the king was dwelling in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies all around, that the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells inside ten curtains. Then Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But it happened that night that the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, Would you build a house for me to dwell in? For I have not dwelt in a house since the time that I brought the children of Israel up from Egypt, even to this day. But I moved about in a tent and in a tabernacle. Wherever I have moved about with all the children of Israel, have I ever spoken a word to anyone from the tribes of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus shall you say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the sheepfold, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people, over Israel, and I have been with you wherever you have gone, and have cut off all your enemies from before you, and have made you a great name, like the name of the great men who are on the earth. Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, that they may dwell in a place of their own, and move, up, move no more. Nor shall the sons of wickedness oppress them any more as previously. Since the time I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, and have caused you to rest from all your enemies." Also, the Lord tells you that he will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you, who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men. But my mercy shall not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you, and your throne shall be established forever. According to all these words and according to all this vision, so Nathan spoke to David. Verse 1 suggests uh, possibly that the events of chapter 7 have taken place after chapter 8, after David's Successful military conquest of foreign powers. On to verse 2. For the first time, we're introduced to Nathan. He's going to be an important figure during David's reign and towards his end as well as the crown passes to Solomon. Nathan's important to David because he's a prophet. Now, prophets primarily, their job is to deliver God's messages But they do at times voice personal opinions. And when David expresses the desire to build a house, a temple for the Ark of the Covenant, to replace the tent, Nathan encourages the endeavor. Why not, right? It's evident the Lord is with the king. But God vetoes what Nathan says in verse 4. This verse and verse 17 frame this chapter section as the narrator tells us that the divine message was received and then it was transmitted. All that's between verses 5 to 16 reveal the contents of the night vision. This is what's known as the Davidic covenant. The word covenant is not here, but it is found in various later references to this event in Second Chronicles, Psalms, and Jeremiah, other places. And within verses 5 to 16, we have some natural and structural divisions. In verses 5 and 8, there's some world, uh, parallel word clusters. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, sounds like. Now therefore thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts. Look also at the, in the second half of verse 11, there's that phrase, also the Lord tells you. These three markers break up the long speech. It's like a swimmer coming out of water to get some air. With all that in mind, I believe we have three theological lessons in verses 1 to 17, three truths about God. Again, I'm repeating what I said six months ago. First, God is greater than any human initiative. God is greater than any human initiative. That's verses 1 to 7. Secondly, God desires lowly candidates for the kingly office. God desires lowly candidates for the kingly office. That's verses 8 to 11a. That's the first part of verse 11. Thirdly, God promises to establish The Davidic rule forever. God promises to establish the Davidic rule forever. That's verses 11b, second part of verse 11, to verse 17. These points loosely align with the history of Israel, past, present, and future from David's perspective. So let's look at these points before we turn to his response in verses 18 to 29. First, God is greater than any human initiative. I won't be long on this point. We don't know exactly how God started his speech in tone in verse 5, but I don't think he's upset, sarcastic, or disparaging in tone. David's wish to build a temple did not arise out of selfish ambition, it initially passed through Nathan's scrutiny. But the Lord at times refuses says no to even the good desires we have for his glory. In verses 6 to 7, God provides a brief history of the way he was with Israel. The Lord has not asked for any dwelling or a house from the days of the Exodus, during the conquest, era of the judges, and even during the monarchy. He certainly does not need a place to live. He's the creator of all things. He owns it all. Self-sufficient. He doesn't need a roof over his head like we do every night. We have to remember the truth of Isaiah 66, 1 through 2. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you will build for me and where is the place of my rest? For all those things my hand has made and all those things exist. That's the Lord. Again, God is greater than any human initiative. Now, if we go on to continue in verse 2 of Isaiah 66, you'll find this truth. But on this one will I look, on him who is poor and of a contrite spirit and who trembles at my word. And that reveals another truth about God who chose David. God desires lowly candidates for the kingly office. Verses 8 to 11a build on the previous verses. We just saw how God dealt with his people in the past. Now we're seeing how he dealt with David in the present or more recent history. He began as a lowly candidate. And it's really good for all of us to look back to our beginnings. It's humbling for all of us to all of us saints, to see our calling, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, as 1 Corinthians 1 tells us. We move from David's humble beginnings as the youngest son of Jesse, from shepherding his father's sheep to shepherding God's people. As uh, Psalm seventy-eight seventy-two tells us, he shepherded them, according to the integrity of his heart, and guided them by the skillfulness of his hands. So we see that he was a man after God's own heart and the rightful replacement of Saul. David owes his ascent to his kingly office to God. This God who's been with him in narrow escapes and resounding victories. The Lord took this name unknown, and made it of international renown and this is true in all throughout history that having godly leaders in any organization big or small is a good thing for the people family churches obviously and the government and that's why i think verses 10 to 11a flow seamlessly When the Lord exalts his men as qualified leaders, his people do well. David himself knew this and wrote later in chapter 23, 2 Samuel, verses 3 to 4, the God of Israel said, the rock of Israel spoke to me, he who rules over men must be just, ruling in the fear of God. And what does this look like? And he shall be like the light of the morning when the sun rises, a morning without clouds, like the tender grass, springing out of the earth by clear shining after rain. That's what God intended for the king, lowly candidates to become just rulers. Under their authority, there's stability, there's protection from oppression. The prophecy of chapter 3, verse 18 is fulfilled through this king, by the hand of the Lord's servant David, who save his people Israel, from the hand of the Philistines and the hand of all their enemies. So again, God desires lowly candidates for the kingly office. Now David wasn't a morally perfect man, but he was a blessed man, forgiven of his sins, justified by faith in God for righteousness. Like his forefather Abraham, he genuinely trusted in the Lord for salvation. Both Abraham and David benefited from God's Gracious covenants. That gets us thinking about the third theological truth of this passage. God promises to establish the Davidic rule forever. We began this chapter with David's wish to build a house for the Lord. Now the Lord says he'll build David a house. There's a word play here. Even in English, house not only means a place of residence, it also means a family with ancestors and descendants. And here, David's promised a house that will endure beyond his lifetime. Verse 12 starts with the time reference, when your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers. So Now we moved on from the past and present of Israel to its future. David's house will endure because God establishes it. You see that word established four times in five verses. Behind it are two words in the original language. This doesn't need much comment, but let's make much of how it's the Lord who does the establishing. And if it's him doing this work, it's built to last. And so God promises to establish the Davidic rule forever. And What exactly are these promises? We can dig deeper into verses 12 to 16. Like I did six months ago, we observed five key components of the Davidic covenant in five verses. These are such important truths. You'll find that all throughout the scriptures, we could spend many sermons on this passage. But I'm just going to focus on five. First, continuing in verse 12, there's the word seed. David couldn't and didn't live forever. Without question, he's both dead and buried. His tomb was in Jerusalem. But his sons would continue the monarchy, and the word seed in this context really goes beyond just one of his descendants. Seed here is closer to our concept of dynasty or lineage. There's a guarantee that the house of David will endure through marriage and children. God has sworn with an oath to David that of the fruit of his body, according uh, to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit upon his throne. Moving on to verse 13, we see the temple described as a house for the name of the Lord. Note how David's desire to build, build it wasn't denied forever. It's just that it would be one of his descendants who would do it. He himself was not qualified because, as he finds out later, he has shed too much blood uh, in God's sight. He has made great wars. It turns out his son, Solomon, a man of rest, is the one for the job. But knowing this, David would make sure to get the project ready for him, as we see in First Chronicles. But Solomon won't be the only one who built a tem- temple, and more on that later. Next in verse 14, think about the bond between father and son. That's the relationship between God and the Davidic king. It's a relationship that's permanent and unbreakable. But with that privilege also comes responsibility. When the ruler from from David's line is unruly and out of line, the Lord will discipline. And he will lead him in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And that leads to the discussion of mercy in verse 15. If you keep reading the scriptures in chronological order, boy, do they need it. You'll see wicked kings from David's line, like Rehoboam and Manasseh. God is merciful, though. He remains true to his promises. His loving kindness, faithfulness, covenant, and his promises are secure. 2 Samuel 22, 51 tells us, he is the tower of salvation to his king and shows mercy to his anointed to David and his descendants forevermore. So ultimately David will not fail to have a man as ruler in Israel even if there are temporary vacancies and interregnums. And that leads to verse 16 and the word forever repeated there for emphasis. David's house and kingdom will last for eternity. The Lord has sworn in Jeremiah 33, 20 to 21, that David's seed shall endure forever, and his throne is like the continuance of day and night. Let's not take for granted how amazing is this promise. I read somewhere that the longest dynasty in history is from Bulgaria, the house of Dulo ruled over the early Bulgars for 2,890 years. There are two major dynasties in my own country, Gojoseon and Shila, that together amount to over 3,000 years. Nothing of value lasts forever, it seems, not in this fallen, sinful, sin-filled world, except here, this line of David. It's only because of God's faithfulness that David could rest assured that his dynasty will continue. And this covenant of David has direct implications for us, even if none of us are Jews. That's because these promises of God are central to the gospel, the good news of Jesus, who is David's son and David's Lord. Now, before I talk about the good news, let me start with the bad news of our sins first. Like I said earlier, David's descendants were mostly bad rulers. Surely there were exceptions, but even those exceptional ones were sinners at core. That's the basic problem of humanity. We've departed from God. We rebelled against the Lord's rule over our lives. We lusted, coveted, stolen. We said false things. We took God's name in vain. We deserve nothing but God's wrath. None are exempt from this judgment. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're all in trouble. We need someone from heaven to not only stand above sin, but also sit on throne on the throne that's on here on earth. That's why the Son of God enters the world as the Son of David. Now, Christ could not come from any other line, he had to fulfill these prophecies. So that's why you see in Matthew 1 and Luke 3 the genealogies of Jesus. One traces the line of his adopted father, Joseph, and the other from his virgin mother, Mary, respectively. Both lines meet at David and pass through him. Jesus Christ received the sure mercies of David as David's seed. If there's any doubt, read Luke 1, 31-33. The angel Gabriel appeared to Virgin Mary to tell her at the time, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the highest and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. Jesus, as the perfect God-man, grew up and lived a perfect life, and then because Jesus is the son of David, the house of David will endure. But there had to be a sacrifice to secure the mercies of God. Price paid for our sins. So Hebrews 5 8 tells us though Jesus was sinless and though he was a son, he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. He suffered not because he did something wrong, but because we did everything wrong. He was chastened with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men, not because he committed iniquity. Jesus was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities chastisement for our peace was upon him and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So our Lord Jesus went to the cross. As that hymn goes, he took my sins and my sorrows. He made them his very own. He bore the burden to Calvary. He suffered and died for me. He paid the penalty of our sin, God's wrath, eternal separation from him in hell. He did it for God's glory and love as our substitute. On the third day, he rose again. Jesus' soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. The one born of the seed of David according to the flesh was declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. He ascended and someday Christ Jesus will return to judge all mankind. One of his projects when he returns will be rebuilding or building a literal temple in Jerusalem and the blueprint will be taken from Ezekiel. He has the zeal of David and the privilege of Solomon. Yet Jesus surpasses them both. The future building will be more glorious than anything we've seen on earth because the glory of the Lord fills it. If you want to enter the kingdom of Christ, surrender. Stop the rebellion. Pray to the king. Send your delegation as it were, through prayer, ask for the conditions of peace before it's too late. Before you die, before he returns as conqueror. Repent, turn away from your self rule, selfish living, and self righteousness. Descend from your throne and enthrone Christ. Only trust in Jesus alone. By grace alone. Now for those who already enjoy this relationship with God, through Jesus Christ, we can celebrate and enjoy him forever. We can rest assured at night as we consider his faithfulness. David teaches us how to do that as well. For that, we turn to his reaction to God's gracious promises, and that will get us thinking, About two ways we should react to the gospel, and here's the rest of 2 Samuel 7, from verse 18 to the end. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord, and he said, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me this far? And yet, this was a small thing in your sight, O Lord God, and you have also spoken of your servant's house for a great while to come. Is this the manner of man, O Lord God? Now what more can David say to you? For you, Lord God, know your servant. For your word's sake, and according to your own heart, you have done all these great things to make your servant know them. Therefore you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you, nor is there any God besides you, according to all that we have heard with our ears." And who is like your people, like Israel, the one nation on the earth, whom, you, whom God went to redeem for himself as a people, to make for himself a name, and to do for yourself great and awesome deeds for your land, before your people whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, the nations and their gods. For you have made your people Israel, your very own people forever, and you, Lord, have become their God. Now, O Lord God, the word which you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house, establish it forever and do as you have said. So let your name be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts is the God over Israel, and let the house of your servant David be established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, have revealed this to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore your servant has found it in his heart to pray this prayer to you. And now, O Lord God, you are God, and your words are true, and you have promised this goodness to your servant. Now, therefore, let it please you to bless the house of your servant, that it may continue before you forever. For you, O Lord God, have spoken it, and with your blessing, let the house of your servant be blessed forever. What binds verses 18 to 29 together are David's references to God and references to himself The king addresses God in various different names throughout this prayer. As I said before, Lord in all caps is Yahweh, the God who makes covenant with Israel. Seven times here we observe Lord God with God in all caps. This name is Adonai Yahweh, emphasizing God's kingly sovereign rule. Similarly, in verse 25, we see Lord God with Lord in all caps. This name is Yahweh Elohim emphasizing God's great strength and power. Next, in verses 26 to 27, we, see, we find twice Lord of hosts, that is Yahweh Sabaoth, emphasizing his supreme command over the armies of heaven and earth. Also revealing is the way David refers to himself, the most powerful man in Israel's is content. To be a servant of God. Count the times you see your servant. Verses 19, 20, 21. 25, 26, twice in verse 27, 28, and twice in verse 29. Ten times in the span of 11 verses. Of course, there are other features that bind together David's prayer, but it's also worth noting some internal divisions. Let me present two parts and there are the basis for the two responses to the gospel. So, like David, in response to God's covenant, we ought to, one, be impressed by God's greatness. Be impressed by God's greatness. And two, implore according to God's promises. So first, be impressed by God's greatness. You'll notice that Verses 18 to 24 contain various questions. Who am I? What is my house? Is this the manner of man? That's better phrased as, is this your usual way of dealing with man? What more can David say to you? Who is like your people, like Israel? Again, observe how close to David's heart are the people under his rule. All these questions arise from a man impressed by God's greatness. These are not questions of scientific inquiry as if David's investigating and gathering information. These are questions of rhetorical type, of awe, of amazement. The king is stumped or stuck in a good way. Yes, it's true that the glory of kings is to search out a matter. But if the matter is the unsearchable greatness of God, what more is there to do? Follow David's example here, and in Psalm 145, verse 3. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. So again, in response to the gospel, be impressed by God's greatness. But there's more you'll find in the rest of the chapter, verses 25 to 29, how to implore according to God's promises. David repeats in prayer what was promised to him. The words for established in verses 24 to 26 are taken from earlier earlier verses 12, 13 and 16. The king's saying, "God, do as you said you would." It's not that he's acting entitled. It's not that he's arrogantly demanding, "God you owe me." David's showing us what it means to humbly and confidently approach God as father. This is not for David's glory, but so that the name of the Lord would be magnified forever. The king admits he can only pray like this because the Lord has revealed his good ways to him. He asks for God's blessing on his house because of the one who spoke these blessings and promises, because he is God. His words are true, and his promise is certain. I like Spurgeon's explanation here. Quote, God sent the promise on purpose to be used. If I see a Bank of England note, it is a promise for a certain amount of money and I take it and use it. But oh, I, my friend, do try and use God's promises. Nothing pleases God better than to see his promises put in circulation. He loves to see his children bring them up to him and say, Lord, do as thou hast said. And let me tell you that it glorifies God to use his promises. I say again that verses 25 to 29 teach us to implore according to God's promises. There's a great assurance to pray like this, to be impressed by God and implore him According to his promises. Let's think of that as we sing our final song. Blessed Assurance. Perfect submission, all is at rest. I and my Savior am happy and blessed. Watching and waiting, looking above, filled with his goodness, lost in his love. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that your word is filled with promises. And we stand as children of promise. Lord, the promises that you made to Abraham and to David, as found in these covenants that we see, are all met in our Savior Jesus Christ. In Him are your promises. Yes and Amen. We remember that as we sing, as we live our lives, may we worship you, may we be in awe of you. May we remember that your son is born of the seed of David, that he rose from the dead, and he'll return to sit on the earthly throne of David to rule forever. We will be there that day. Thank you, and we pray all these things in Jesus Christ's name.